everyone to the eighth episode of season three of the Northern Spin podcast. I'm Michael Taylor. By day, I'm the editor of Business Desk in the Northwest. Here's my happy, clappy co-presenter, Chris McGuire, who's never happier than when he's sharing good conservative news. <laughs> You've inserted the word conservative in. Um, but hey, maybe because, it's, maybe because it's conservative... Uh, it is good news, but uh, thank you, Michael. I do like good news, as you know. I'm the executive editor of Tech Blast and Business Cloud, um, and we've got a packed, packed program today. Yes. So, what are we talking about today? Come on, decided what's on the to decided to shake the format up a little bit. You know, so we've got so much to squeeze in. We're going to need a crowbar to get it all in. So, there's two things that I'm really keen to talk about in our first feature before we uh, revert to anything to see here and on manoeuvres in part two. The first one is a, uh, a couple of familiar names: Teesside Mayor Ben Blocker Houchin and the former Leveling Up Minister Simon Seven Weeks Clark. They've launched an extraordinary attack on Yorkshire Post editor James Matheson. Sorry, James Minchinson. Now, I'll be honest with you. I've never seen anything like it before, and I want to talk about that as well. This is about press freedom and intimidation as well. I also want to talk about levelling up. Um, You've out at the Begging Bowl culture and a Northern Agenda investigation found that £23 million, which is almost as much as we're getting in sponsorship for this uh, podcast, was spent by cash-strapped councils to consultants to help them bid against each other for money from the levelling up fund. But there's a couple of things that you want to talk about as well. Well, more than a couple. Uh, we've got, I want to talk about Starmer. Andy Burnham, Suella Braverman. I want to talk about crime and the way that that's being weaponized as a big political issue at the moment, particularly here in the North or the Red Wall, as they seem to call it now. And grifters. Do you know what a grifter is? Well, I didn't know what a grifter was until you mentioned it to me and then I Googled well, we'll, it. We'll maintain that bit of surprise. Okay. Yeah, good. Um, we've got our usual thank yous to do as well to our producers, What Media, who expertly produce this podcast every week. They're the kings of video content creation and they turn our weekly ramblings into the hit weekly podcast and YouTube show that is Northern Spin. And Ellis is back. Ellis, back in the pod. Absolutely. Keeping us keeping us in line. We like everybody uh, from What Media, but to see Ellis back with us, it feels like our mum has rejoined us. Um, so well done to uh, What Media. I'd like to thank uh, our three sponsors. Oscar Technology, he will be in a very good mood today. More about that later. Lily Shippen and Red Flag Alert, who are the co-sponsors alongside Growth Flag. Now, more details about Lily Shippen and Red Flag Alert later. But when it comes to Oscar, they share our commitment to integrity. And I want to try and kill two birds with one stone here. Oscar supported the hugely successful Reframe Women in Tech Conference at the point at Emirates Old Trafford in Manchester at the back end of last week. Now, the guest speaker was the amazing Dame Stephanie Shirley. Um, the event was organized by Becky Taylor, who is herself an amazing lady of tech returners. Now, she told me she told me off tongue-in-cheek, I think, because I hadn't included them. You'll like it, my good news blog on a Friday. I know you are a uh, subscriber. Um, I hadn't included uh, the event in my uh, Friday blog. So she messaged me. So apologies, Becky, for missing you out. I will get you in this week's good news blog. Uh, and well done, Oscar, and well done, Becky Taylor and everybody else involved in Reframe Women in Tech Technology. Did you go to that event? No. Right. No, I wasn't. My next question was, did you host it? No, I didn't host it. I wasn't I wasn't invited. But to be fair, they were massively oversubscribed and they had to turn people away. So and they turned you away. Uh probably, probably. So I I was thinking about Andy Morell, the CEO of Oscar Technology, this weekend as he was at Wembley, watching his beloved Bolton Wanderers beat Plymouth Argyle 4-0 in Sunday's Papa John's trophy final. Um, maybe it would be a good day to see if he wants to extend his sponsorship. Andy, go Wanderers. Well, the thing about (laughs) thing about Bolton Wanderers fans is they've had the um They've had a thin end of the wedge for about, you know, five or six years now. So for them, there were 75,000 people went. It's phenomenal. Amazing. It was, the, it was the highest attendance over the weekend yeah. for, a th- for a tier three game yeah. for a minor it's, trophy. It's phenomenal. Absolutely. I, I like things like that because I think it, it shows that the, the supposedly this inexorable drive towards, you know, a European Super League and the power of the big clubs. And it must frustrate the hell out of them to know that actually sort of small city clubs or big town clubs like Bolton and Plymouth can, on a de- on their day, draw in such big crowds for things like that. Last week, Derby County women played Nottingham Forest women at Pride Park and they got 5,200 5, people, right. which well, was higher than most of the WSL 
um, you know, or some of the WSL games. Brilliant. Right. Tell me all about Simon Seven Week Clark and Ben Blocker Houchin. I really like those nicknames, by the way. Yeah, they're starting to stick, which is probably the reason why we keep mentioning. And why it have they gone episode. to war with one of the UK's most respected regional newspapers, the Yorkshire Post? Yeah. Um, look, first things first. I generally don't want to keep mentioning Clark and Houchin. They'll be sitting there now, thinking to themselves, "Oh, they've mentioned us again, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Um, but they keep putting their foot on it. Genuinely, they do. And they've gone after Yorkshire Post editor James Mitchison. It's outrageous. Now, James is, I don't know him. Um, you know, I can't pretend we're friends, you know, um, but but he's a journalist who I do respect. He's very um, high profile on social media. Regional newspapers have had a hard time for a long period of time. We've spoken about it. Uh, we've also spoken on this pod about the problems with crabs and crustaceans that have washed up on the beaches of the Northeast. Now, critics have blamed dredging work for Teesside Freeport, which is Ben Houchin's brainchild. A report cleared the dredging of being at fault. I always think they're a little bit selective with what they want to listen to, but they cleared the uh, the dredging as being at fault and found the most mm. likely cause is a pathogen. You're not sure, though? Mm, not quite. The report said the evidence was at best inconclusive and plenty of academic experts with more experience than you and I and certainly more experience than Blocker Houchin are still concerned about the effects that dredging might be having on sea life. So anyway, either way, it's devastating for the fishing industry, but that's not all we're here to talk about. It's about press freedom, isn't no, 100%. it? 100%. Um, so what, what did he do? Well, so the Yorkshire Post's James Mitchison gets a tip-off on Twitter. Now, I get that all the time. And when I was the editor of the Chorley Guardian and Twitter wasn't, you know, it wasn't the thing it is today, I'd get messages from was people. Was that meal, meal deals at Harvester? Yeah, absolutely. No, Greg's in Chorley. It was yeah. always Greg's. Um, <laughs> so um, so he gets this uh, a tip off on Twitter purporting to show thousands of mussels and other Dead Sea creatures washed up on the coastline near Redcar. Now, what he did, he appealed on Twitter for uh, verification. He didn't take it as red. A lot of people just take this stuff as red. You know, he said, we're trying to, this was his tweet, we're trying to arrange cover for this, but if you're in Saltburn or uh, on the northeast coast now and can capture this uh, in stills and video, it'll help us to build a case. So that's what he did. So Middlesbrough MP, Simon Seven Weeks Clark, who was the um, levelling up minister under Liz Truss's government for seven weeks, then accused the Yorkshire Post, this is his quote, of deeply irresponsible journalism before they published anything. So basically, the editor of the Yorkshire Post has put a piece out on Twitter saying, if you've got any pictures or video, send it to us so we can ascertain the veracity of what's been said. And, and, and Simon Seven Weeks Clark wades in before he's published anything and has a go at him. Houchin then steps in, dismissed the Yorkshire Post as guff. Now, this is mainly about Clark as opposed to Houchin. Um, you know, and uh, Clark accused Mitchison of, of hating the Conservatives. Always a bad move, if you ask me. The Yorkshire Post has a responsibility to collaborate um, tip-offs. So for Clark to accuse a paper of deeply irresponsible journalism before they'd published a single word, that hints of something somewhere between paranoia and bullying. What do you think? Well, we've said it before. Blocker is remarkably thin-skinned, and it seems like seven weeks is as well. Um, public servants and politicians who take the heavy-handed approach very, very rarely win. In all my time in journalism, the most pressure I ever had was probably from a Japanese technology company that begins with S and ends in Y, four letters, <laughs> um, and also a lot of pressure when I was the editor of Insider, occasionally uh, from the Manchester family of institutions, particularly around I was heavily lobbied over the congestion charge campaign of 2008, both by Peel from a, a guy who's running that called Andrew Simpson and, and from Howard Bernstein's side as well. But, you know, I also used to get heat from people who didn't win awards. <laughs> Yeah, well, you did as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but did, you, you're a newspaper editor, a local newspaper editor, yeah. uh, the the Chorley and Leyland Guardian. Did you ever get lent on by politicians? Yeah, I, I always um, see. I I was always quite um, animated if anyone ever questioned my integrity. I said, "You can call me a rubbish journalist," and a lot of people did. Some of them would have been right, but never question my integrity. So when I was the editor of the Chorley and Leyland Guardian, Chorley was Labour and South Ribble, which is Leyland, was was Conservative. So I was accused of being a closet Tory by Labour and a Labour supportive by the Tories. One of so them was right. I always said I must have been doing something right. Um, my approach was always 
always to put the information out there in the public eye, i.e. on the pages of The Guardian, let the public decide. The, the comparison I would use and the analogy that I quite like is a football manager who questions the integrity of a referee before a match to try and get some favourable decisions. Is it gamesmanship or is it bullying? Now, the difference here is that... Um, but ben Houchin's waded in, hasn't he? What, yeah. What's, what's he done? Well, he's done a couple of things, actually. Um, he's uh, it, What he's done is is he's accused the Yorkshire Post of, of, of producing guff. Um, and he's produced, he's shared some links of um, the cricketer Azim Rafiq uh, and a story that the Yorkshire Post did. And the the the, the sort of uh, insinuation was that the Yorkshire Post had been accused of uh, campaigning to discredit Azim Rafiq and his allegations. And Ben Houchin shared that link and basically said, you know, to uh, to the YP, you know, you look the other way when it suits you. I mean, mm. this is the sort of stuff that gets played out on social media. It's the sort of thing where anybody with anything about it will pick up the phone and say, let's have a conversation. That's both of them. Ben Houchin won't even share the stage with a conservative. With um, a Labour person. And, and what, it, what it shows yeah. to me is it shows a party... It's, and it shows politicians that that are um, they've lost touch with reality. Yeah. So anyway, I'd, let's let's move swiftly on from all of that. I think we know where our loyalties lie on this one, and we're uh, unfortunately for our regular listeners, we're agreeing on this point. Let's yeah. let's tackle some other issues, which uh, maybe we've got a point of discord, which will provide uh, ne- needless and wanton entertainment for the listeners. Out crime. While well, you crime. and I clash, right? Well, let's, let's talk, talk about crime. Let's talk about crime. Boom, boom. <laughs> so Keir Starmer made a set-piece spe- speech in Stoke last week about the importance of tackling crime and how it affects people's overall well-being and how safe they feel in their communities. Yvette Cooper was also in Burnley last week with Oliver Ryan, the Labour candidate for a Why seat. Why do you always, when you mention the word Burnley, you put an accent on? Burnley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just to point out. Yeah. Yes. As a black and Rose fan. Yeah, well, I, I could do I, I could do the accent for every town in the northwest if well, you want. If you want, go on. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, well, let's, let's just do Burnley for okay. now. So, um, yeah, Yvette Cooper was in Burnley this week with Oliver Ryan, the Labour candidate for a seat they desperately need to win back if they're to have any chance of power. And she said, we are bringing back community policing. People committing antisocial behaviour know there is a good chance they will get away with it at the moment. Okay, and she quoted all sorts of statistics about the numbers of neighbourhood police officers, which has fallen from 444 in 2015 to 249 in 2022 under a Conservative government. In the northwest, neighbourhood officers have fallen since 2015 from, well, significant numbers, almost halved. Or PCSOs, that's police community support officers, have also fallen. Asked by the Burnley Express how Labour would pay for it, it's almost like you were in the room, Chris. Miss yeah. <laughs> um, Cooper, who they quoted, which I thought was quite funny, actually, yeah. um, said, Labour has a fully fled, fully funded plan to invest over £360 million a year to restore neighbourhood policing by merging the procurement of IT systems and other services which are currently independently handled by all 43 forces. That's a huge cost. Now, I know you often criticise Labour, Chris, for not having the detail, but let's look at this in two dimensions. Number one, Starmer's hour-long speech in Stoke was very, very specific on law and order issues, as you would expect from a former director of public prosecutions. So too, as I've just quoted, were Yvette Cooper and Oliver Ryan when they were in Burnley last week. So much so that Rishi Sunak has pretty much stolen the policy and done what the Tories seem to be doing quite a lot of at the moment, is in reducing it to a soundbite. Now, for me, on crime, one of the big problems is rhetoric, especially especially around crime, but across lots of other things. And it can have catastrophic consequences. In America, the three strikes and you're out policy means they've got the highest rates of incarceration of any ethnic group in any country in the world of, of, uh, of black men in prison long term. Um, joint enterprise, that's been... Uh, such a catastrophic policy. Young lads hanging around on the streets. One of them goes and does something stupid, even resulting in a loss of life, and they all get sent down for joint enterprise murder. And and stuff like zero tolerance for drugs. I think, and the big danger in all of this antisocial stuff that they released recently was tackling aggressive begging. Why not just attack the causes of why people are on the streets begging, either the mental health issues or the acute poverty mm. issues? Anyway, that's my... <laughs> Two bits worth. No, I, I, eventually, the thing is, what it is, is with any regulation and law enforcement, ultimately, either whether it's the police or council officials, they tend to go after the easy targets, the low-hanging fruit. And a lot of this stuff is really difficult to tackle. 
the, the point you make about uh, Starmer, he gave his speech in Stoke. Um, it, it got some coverage, but it didn't get loads of coverage. Clearly, you'd have been all over it because it's, it's it's a passion for you. No, it's not a passion. Uh, it's th- it's an issue that we want to debate on this on this show. I, I think, and what, it's one of his four missions, which we have as a responsible political podcast yeah. agreed agree to cover and take seriously. I think what Starmer's doing is, see, Starmer's maybe not being out there as much as Sunak and saying, these are my pledges, but you can see that he's basically saying to all his um, all his MPs, you know, to be on message as regards to crime. I do, one thing that I do find quite interesting is the campaigning for the May the 4th elections has started already. Yes, um, has, big yeah. style, you know, and, and the fact that they were in Burnley, I'll call it Burnley without putting an accent on, is, uh, is quite telling. And they're identifying these marginal seats. And a lot of people think they're identifying find the seats that they need to win, you know, in the general election. Uh, and they're just doing this as a dummy run, sort of. The crime, and it has always been the case, is a vote winner, seen as a vote winner or a vote loser. It, it wasn't a coincidence that Starmer's speech uh, in Stoke was followed by the Tories' crackdown on antisocial behaviour. Um, there is an element of a gimmick about it. We spoke about it a bit last week. The Conservatives have said that people who vandalise public spaces will have to repair the damage they caused within 48 hours of being given an order. You know, well, actually, he's not got enough police to he implement chain that. chain as well, doesn't he? Yeah, people yeah. dressed in orange jumpsuits, yeah, clearing I mean, off graffiti. I mean, I mean, you can throw it back as far as 2000 when Tony Blair said that the uh, the police would frog march, you know, Yobbs caught on a Saturday to a cash point to get him to pay £100. It's a gimmick. It's not going to work. I think the announcement on crime is part of Labour's bold new vision for the country. I think there's a long way to go. Now, I want to get your opinion on something that, once again, I'm worried about we're going to agree. I think the Labour Party and uh, Keir Starmer have been less about gimmicks um, than than the Tories. The Tories are the government of the day. So why did Keir Starmer promise to freeze council tax? Now, a former civil servant, David Hyam, tweeted in response to this. He said, you can't believe in devolution and not allow local authorities to raise money. I thought it smacked of the Labour Party trying to get a cheap headline, and I thought that was below Keir Starmer. I do. I totally agree. And David Hyam, as ever, is right. Very, very wise counsel. Um, always always take his views seriously, as I did when he was a, a civil servant in the government office for the Northwest. Um, I think it's a really dumb thing to promise, and it makes local politicians, that, who they're supposedly supporting in these elections, look absolutely powerless. The Lib Dems did this in Stockport when I was working for the Labour group there. They said they were going to freeze council tax when they were in opposition, and then when they got into power... And they said they'd hold that pledge. And then eventually, what did they do when the financial budgeting meeting comes around annually? They put council tax up because they have to, because that's the cold, hard reality of life in local government is that the finances are absolutely stretched. This is the thing, though, that um, Starmer's getting some stick at the moment and because he's he's been accused of going against his previous pledges. I think this one about uh, our freeze council tax, you know, he, he will have to go against that. He can't he can't impose that from the top down. It won't work. Um, something else I want to uh, pick your brains about, because it's been getting your dander up, um, which is the rise of political grifters. Yeah. Now, I did some research on this. Um, oh, you did? Yeah, right. yeah. Okay. So, so for those people who don't know what a grifter is, just tell us. Okay. So I've become mildly irritated over the last few years with grifters. You know, the types, not just celebrities who speak about politics that you often seem to get quite animated about unless it's Jim Davidson, but people <laughs> whose only discernible purpose is to pontificate on the issue of the day for clicks and to fuel outrage. Now, in in crime terms, and I'm not saying this this is the same thing. In crime yeah. terms, if you've seen TV shows like The Hustle, yeah, yeah like it, a yeah. grifter is a con artist, someone who obtains money by swindling or tricking others. In politics, the word refers to people who use the political process as a way to enrich themselves. So, Mm. right. Um, Often these people aren't proper journalists like me and you. They're polemicists, talking heads, and um, um, I won't say the word because you don't like swearing, do you? No. Gob, gobby, yeah, gobby yeah. types. Yeah, gobby yeah. types, yeah. Or blue tick bros with large social media followings and ready-made opinions to inflame either a Jeremy Vine afternoon show or a talk radio programme. The people I'm talking about. Right, let's go through the cast of characters. On the left, we've got Owen Jones, Ash Sarka, who was recently on Question Time, Aaron Bastani from Navarra Media, and Carrie-Ann Mendoza from The Canary. All of them have been on Question Time at various points, a programme I can't be bothered to watch anymore. I saw an episode at the weekend, an old episode of Bullseye um, with Jim Bowen and uh, Owen Jones. Was, on yeah, it. yeah, yeah. No, no, no. But you can, on the left, we've got Owen Jones, Ashaka, <laughs> Aaron Bastina, and Kellyanne Mendoza. Right. In the centre, 
Yes, in the centre, they tend to be journalists, lawyers and economists with slightly more authority. And that's just, that's, maybe that's my bias shrieking through. Maybe there are cent centrist dads on social media who are a bit more irritating. Uh, people like Marina Perkis, Femi Oluwale, uh, and that lawyer who killed a fox with a baseball bat whilst wearing a Camino, Jolly and Morn. On the right, well, this is where it gets really interesting. Nigel Farage, any of the talk TV or talk sport presenters, Mike Graham or Neil Oliver, Isabel Oakshot, who you've you seem mildly obsessed with a couple of weeks ago when she was leaking the Hancock files. Yeah, and I've not uh, changed my opinion. No. Um, anyway, now that the blue tick on Twitter's going, how are we going to spot them? And by the way, I'm not paying for my blue tick. No, I'm saying a bill by Twitter. Do I want to pay like 80 quid for a year? No, I don't. I earned my blue tick. I'll keep it. Thank you very much. If you see a blue tick and you click on it and it says this person has paid for it, you instantly, you know, lower it in your estimation. That Ridiculous. Yeah. I think Twitter's dying on its backside, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, anyway, the latest one I want to just briefly mention is Matthew Goodwin. Now, I first met him when... Matthew and Rob Ford, Professor Rob Ford as he now is, wrote a book called Revolt on the Right about the rise of UKIP in about 2013, 2014. Really, really interesting read at the time, very uh, forward-looking. There's some really good observation in there. And Rob Ford is a highly credible political scientist, one of the real thinkers behind the British election survey. In fact, we should get Rob and his wife, uh, Maria Soboska, on here because their book, Brexit Land, was an absolute classic that described so brilliantly so many different social trends that are going on in this country at the moment. But Matthew, sadly, seems to have gone native. And it was commented on in the New Statesman at the weekend in a review of his new book, Values, Voice and Virtue, The New British Politics, that people who study cults often end up joining them. And he promoted this new book with a column in The Sun, The Mail and The Times with ludic ludicrously overblown attacks on the UK cosmopolitan elite who impose their liberal outlook on a conservative country. And Rob has been pretty outraged by a lot of what uh, his former academic colleague has uh, said, particularly a nasty paragraph about the excellent Stephen Bush of the Financial Times, where he basically says, yeah, even when there are people who aren't from the same metropolitan liberal elite, they've all been to the same universities, which is just a way of basically diminishing all of Stephen Bush's achievements as a working class black and Jewish man from the East End of London, who went to a state school and worked his way to Oxford and then ultimately a job on the FT. I thought it was really, really snooty. Yeah. And another one is Douglas Murray, who commented after an iftar at Manchester Cathedral saying, eh, will they be offering Holy Communion in mosques now? Which is just a ridiculous thing to say because it's not only theologically incoherent, culturally ignorant, but it's politically incendiary. So I'm a sorry, but jog on, Dougie. <laughs> I, uh, we're not political grifters, are we? I don't know, are we? No, what I don't if think we, we are. Oh uh, my God, what if we weren't? I'm a massive hypocrite. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We'd be exposed. I think what's well, Maybe we should have called our podcast The Northern Grifters. Well, I looked at some of the names that, that, that you just mentioned there. They get and paid more than we do for going on telly, don't they? Yeah, they do. And they get more, they get more bookings than we do. you get for do. going on BBC Radio Lancashire? Uh, nothing, you actually. Or, I get... or as Jim Bowen on Bullseye used to say, <laughs> you're BFH. You're bus yeah. on. Yeah, no, I got, I got nothing. But but I, a lot of people give me their time and I like to give some of my time yeah, as I well. I, I think, um, see, I looked at some of the people that you mentioned there and they just say stuff to, it's like clickbait, but it's uh, just to, to, to attract uh, opinion and cause controversy. I don't like it. It's like... Like uh, Hartley Brewer, she's somebody else that I, I, I've uh, blocked on Twitter. It's just she says stuff. Have you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a blocker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, actually, have Chris I blocked her? No, I might have silenced her, so Muta. I don't have to see any of it. Right. I don't like to block anybody. Who do you like, though? Um, Jim Bowen, <laughs> Jim Davison. No, Jim Davison. Clearly, I don't like Jim Davison. That was a joke. Uh, he said it. No, you heard I it don't here like first. him. I don't like him. Just um, note to the producers don't go editing that out when he rings you later. No, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really old school, really old school. Uh, I'm probably old and I went to school, but I'm old school. I'm a journalist. I, I went to journal college when I was 19, 18. I became a trainee. I qualified and I became a senior journalist. I have gone to the school of hard knocks. I've gone to university of life, even if I haven't gone to university, if any of these uh, grifters want to have a go at me. I respect people who've, who've, who've put in the hard yards. People like George Parker, the Financial Times, Beth Rigby at Sky, Chris Mason at the BBC, Pippa uh, Crera of The Guardian, Katie Balls of The Spectator, who I like a lot, actually. They've earned their stripes. Um, now, where I have a problem is, is people who write a blog, call themselves journalists, 
journalists uh, or, or, or they're a 25 year old university graduate who've got a job as a special advisor to a politician no one's ever heard of and then they live on the back of that for the next 30 years of their life and, and they get uh, appearances on TV programs and radio programs I think, there's, I think there's a bit of a straw man thing going on there no, could no. you actually name someone who fits that description well no I, I, I no, no. no, no I, just, I just hear these people okay. and, I, and I Google them and I say what have they got most of them have got their own Wikipedia oh, entry yeah. most of them have got their Wikipedia entry as well I, I think the media has to raise the bar as well I think the problem is yeah. it's a bit like you don't want it to be like Fox News yeah it's fueling you know, outrage isn't it? they fill the airwaves with this band of quasi experts the problem and we discussed it last week is programs like GB News have lowered the bar um, can I just say to any media organisations out there looking for insightful comments myself and Michael Taylor are available co-hosts of the award winning list at the moment Northern Spin Podcast and we're not grifters <laughs> no. yeah. Chris anyway t- tell me about some work by an e- another excellent journalist who you could add to that galaxy of stars that you've just listed above uh, Rob Parsons from the uh, Northern Agenda podcast yeah from Reach PLC political correspondent uh, across the north yeah. he's written about uh, leveling up and the leveling up fund, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. And actually, in fairness, I don't think Rob would want all the credit. It was uh, his the reach. Somebody in the reach team did this investigation. We spoke recently about there's been two awards, two rounds of awards under the leveling up fund, four point eight billion pound. Um, it's been described as like creating this Hunger Games mentality because it's putting councils against each other. So what they did is they did some research, uh, and there were two stories actually because the Labour got some figures. This is where I think Labour did a really good job. They uh, they worked out only ten percent of the m- money awarded as part of the level up funds actually been spent so the point they're making is the toys have made a lot of noise around giving out this leveling up money but they've not given much of it to the people who need it um, but rob parsons uh, northern agenda podcast did an investigation last week where they looked at councils have spent 23 million pound of public money on consultants to help them bid against each other for a share of this 4.8 million 4.8 billion leveling up fund now some councils have spent as much as 1.3 million pound on outside experts I know this is one of your pet hates, actually. It's a bit like when people employ people to send an award entry in um, and they spend a lot of money to try and get an award entry. And I think that devalues the awards process. Now, the absurdity is with this levelling up fund that if you got money on the round one of the levelling up, you were instantly debarred from getting any money on round two. Um, but £2.6 million was spent on doomed round two, uh, round two bids that couldn't be successful. Uh, and it's just it's just... It's just absurd at a time when local councils are cash-strapped and they're having to make tough decisions. The idea that they're spending £1.3 million to submit an entry does seem a bit perverse to me. It does. And critics have compared the process of bidding for money like the Hunger Games. In fact, Lisa Nandy has likened it to the Hunger Games style of competition. So I'm very sorry to disappoint listeners who like the fact that we sometimes clash over certain things and provide you with needless sparring and entertainment (laughs) worthy of a program indeed like the Hunger Games. But um, we're going to have to go to our first break now in a uh, spirit of agreement. Welcome back to the middle bit of Northern Spin. I've interviewed thousands of CEOs, vice chancellors of universities, business leaders, and they all need a really good personal assistant or executive assistant to keep their life on track. And when it comes to making those big decisions, those sorts of people really need their PA or EA as a sounding board. And that's where Lily Shippen come in, a specialist recruitment agency for HR and business support staff. That's right. They've got bases in Manchester and London. Lily Shippen recruit for a range of jobs, including uh, EAs, PAs, office managers, receptionists, HR business partners, and many more. They don't just know how to recruit HR um, and business support stuff, but they know crucially when. So if you're an MD, CEO, uh, or business leader in the North or elsewhere, remember the name Lily Shippen. Also worth mentioning, quite a nice insights piece in Business Cloud this week from Lily Shippen. Yes, and thank you for your support of this podcast. In a minute, we're going to be discussing who's on manoeuvres, but there are a number of regional stories that we need to discuss first. Where are we starting? Well, um, one of the words that you send me more than any other word, other than Jim Davison, is insight. So we always try and provide yep. a bit of insight. So last week, we spoke about Risha Sunak. We both agreed that Risha Sunak was a far better leader than Keir Starmer. So I did a poll on LinkedIn. No, we didn't. No. <laughs> so I did a poll on LinkedIn, and I asked, who was the best leader, Starmer or Sunak? I gave people three options, Keir Starmer, Rishi Sunak, or, or neither. Keir Starmer got 38% of the votes, so 229, so it's a reasonable sample size. Mm-hmm. Um, Rishi Sunak got 
which surprised me actually, and uh, neither came in at 41%. Steve Oliver, co-founder of Music Magpie, he really is the granddad of business. Uh, I know you interviewed him last week actually, summed it up best when he said, Sunak's certainly a better leader than the crook and the economic barn pot that preceded him. Um, but I think we should use the word barn pot more. Liz barn pot trust. Um, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But is highly complicit in the shambles of the last few years. I could be listening to you here. Starmer gets far too much stick for lacking charisma, which is perhaps fair, but he is a fundamentally decent, honest and intelligent individual, which are far more important characteristics for any leader. Anything to see here? Yeah, lots. I think Starmer's on the right path. And I think when it's shifting the opinion of someone who would probably describe himself as a centre-right-ish Tory businessman like Steve, who's probably, is just the sort of pe person that, that, uh, that needs to be won over, who thinks that the economic catastrophe that the Tories have overseen, that have affected the business decisions that people like him have made, who are aspirational, um, aspirational for his, for his, daughters and for his future grandchildren, all the rest of it, they're exactly the sort of people. I actually created a demographic category called Wilmslow Steve, which I didn't have him in mind, but it's, you know, people who are maybe socially liberal, more socially liberal than their parents were. And they're, you know, they support business. They maybe work, you know, clearly work in the private sector. In, in his case, he literally is chief executive listed company. But I think, yeah, I think it's a lot to see there. Now, I also... Um, Listen to an interview last week on the High Performance Podcast with Jake Humphrey and Damian Hughes, and it kind of reinforced a lot of what I've already thought about Starmer, chiming a lot of what, a lot with what Steve Oliver said as well. Number one, he's a decent man. His story, his backstory, is genuinely impressive, rising to be the director of public prosecutions from a relatively humble beginnings. He's a normal bloke with a normal family, normal friends. He's protective of them. He's private. He doesn't want his kids being named. <clears throat> he undershares in the same way that Angela Rayner, by contrast, overshares by the, both their own admissions. He's an Arsenal fan. <clears throat> and fundamentally, there's just nothing inauthentic about him. He's reached the top of his profession, the pinnacle. I think people like that. And then he's pivoted towards a new career. And here's the thing, in a world where that presidential style of leadership is ever more important, I think that the public, as they get to know him more and more, will find him relatable and they'll like him. His weak spot, to be fair, is, and the Tories are going to push, push this mercilessly, is everything that he said when he served under Jeremy Corbyn and everything he said in the leadership election to burnish his left-wing credentials in order to win, to win over a left-wing Labour Party membership and position himself as Jeremy Corbyn's friend, and there's a video of him saying that, I think will come back to haunt him. Last week's brutal Corbinning, see what I did there? That's so subtle. Yeah. Had one obvious upside. He distanced himself from Jeremy Corbyn, but it opens up Starmer to accusations of being a bit of a weather vane. Changing I, his mind to suit to suit the audience that he's speaking to. I, I um, once again, I want to disappoint our listeners um, because I, I agree what you said there about Starman. Um, Starman, I think he is fundamentally a, a sound guy. I think he's got integrity. I, I also think um, you know Sunak <coughs> is is cut from the same cloth. I think Sunak, yes, he might be a more expensive cloth, but I think Sunak fundamentally is a good guy. I think the problem Sunak's got is he's got he's got a lot of um, you know, he's got a lot of baggage around him. Um, politicians who I've got no time with and and some of the things that he's been involved in um, during his time as uh, as an MP. A uh, couple of things you mentioned there though about Corbyn. I thought I thought that was really interesting because um, you know, last week, obviously, Jeremy Corbyn's been told he can't stand as a Labour candidate in the next general election. Kevin Maguire, who I've met incidentally, journalist with the Daily Mirror, no relation to me, he tweeted, blocking Corbyn is wrong and um, authoritarian, uh, intended to intimidate other left MPs, should be up to Islington North whether they wanted him again. Um, I, and and. I'm not a fan of Corbyn for lots of reasons, but there's some video that circulated and I, I, I checked it on more than one source. But a journalist, I think from Sky, asked him what he felt about the decision. A perfectly legitimate question. He was asked about, what do you think about the decision which effectively bans you from standing at the next general election? He could have just said, and now's not the right time to talk over it. Thank you very much. He was so rude and so incredibly breathtakingly arrogant to this journalist. And I just thought to myself, how on earth did this guy ever become the leader of the Labour Party? Anything to see here? Yeah, lots to see. I think welcome to the very, you know, the wonderful world of the Corbyn cult. 
he is short tempered and particularly aggressive to women journalists. And this isn't the first time that he's done that. Um, remember him coming out of his house and slamming his door? I mean, I mean, what must it be like to come out of your house and be met by the press gaggle? It must be really annoying. And Starmer talked about it as well. Um, but I mean, I guess Rishi Sunak doesn't have that because he gets a private jet from his, probably his private airfield, doesn't he? Well, they, they can't wait at the gate of his house because he doesn't live in a terraced house in London. He lives. The Guardian did a story when I said that he spent like half a million pound in a, a number of weeks, and I just I thought, that. I just thought, what? Well, how ridiculous is that? Uh, it was he ridiculous. is the yeah. prime. He's the prime minister of this country. I know. Um, I, uh, I, 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 do you remember all those interviews Corbyn used to do where he goes, "Let me finish." Yeah. You let me finish. Yeah, he was the um, he was the wrong leader at the wrong time. Um, mentioned Rishi Sunak. There was a picture that did the rounds at the back end of last week, and it was the most dreadful picture, which will come back. Um, well, this, and yeah, go on. Be repeated. Yeah, so I basically, know, it was a picture of Rishi Sunak. He's not the tallest man in the world, so he's peering into the world's smallest pothole in Darlington. I think it was about about six centimeters, if that, um, as part of his campaign. He wants to get around the local area um, as part of May's elections, and it was just a dreadful picture what is your take on that yeah as i was saying before well i've said as i have said before rishi sunak's terrible at politics sometimes i think how did he not spot that that was going to look really really bad and it was the people with him as well some of them are quite big weren't they yeah yeah which yeah. almost made him look even smaller and more ridiculous and ben blocker houchin was in that picture as well blocking the view yeah <laughs> um but again, do we, get, do we thing, get paid do we get paid for every time we mention the word block or blocker we should do we should do yeah what well, the other thing I, I keep forgetting to do you must remind me is to uh d d do the northern town in its accent when i say it so there they were in Dalinan. <laughs> Uh, with Jonathan Dulston and Darlan and MP Peter Gibson pledging to fix the UK's potholes. Do you know what the problem with the Tories going on about potholes is? Yeah, well, you'll tell me it's it's, it's the Tories Tory fault. austerity. It's their fault. It's their fault that councils haven't got the money to fix potholes. Planning consultant and former Lib Dem deputy leader of Stockport Council Ian Roberts pointed out on Twitter to put the government's two hundred million pound fund for fixing potholes into perspective. In two thousand and fourteen, we allocated one hundred million pounds to fix pavements and highways just in Stockport. Yeah. And we yeah. haven't got a particular bad problem in Stockport, but they have now. That like everywhere else. That picture in Darlington. That picture in Darlington. And, Ridiculous. Um and it's nothing to do with the fact that Ben Blocker Houchin was blocking the view. Um but but that's the optics of that look look bad. Four guys yeah. looking into a tiny pothole. Yeah. It just and actually if I was if I was advising um Rishi Sunak, I'd say, look, I said we need to change the dynamic of this picture yeah. because this is just red meat to uh, you know, to 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 our critics. Um I, I missed an opportunity to do a town name in an accent as well when I mentioned Stockport. <laughs> I tell you what, I think we've said what you else up with have we got? Crit. Come on, let's move okay. on. What have we got? Well, a story that I spotted um, and it got a lot of coverage at the weekend. Manchester's become the first UK city to launch a tourist tax for visitors. Yep. The city visitor charge will mean people face an extra one pound per room per night. The money will be used to help run large events, conferences, festivals, marketing campaigns, and for street cleanliness. It will raise an estimated three million pound a year. The Welsh government is set to follow suit. You went to Rome recently, didn't you? And I think you paid a tourist yep. tax, and you said you had no problem. With yeah. it. Anything to see here? Yeah, it's devolution in action. T taxes are choices to governors to choose. So yeah, I think it's uh, it seems a decent idea. And if it makes the city centre and you know well, well wherever this tax is levied work, then that's good. The Manchester accent, by the way, was subject to some academic research. This yeah. it apparently it's disappearing. It's it's well because all, all these posh kids moving it in the city centre. So it's Manchester. You're bringing it back. You're bringing this uh, this accent back. Um, story that got a lot of coverage at the time, and I think it's I think it's really worthy of us mentioning it because the Guardian newspaper, its roots are in Manchester, um, and there was a decision last week by the owners of the Guardian, the Scott Trust, to issue an apology for the role the newspaper's founders, particularly the, the editor uh, of the day, the first editor, I think, had in slavery, and they've pledged to give. Ten million pound by way of restoration. Um, do you think there's anything to see here? Um, I think it's going to absolutely infuriate all the right people. So in many ways, it's a good thing. But just for clarification, there was a brilliant piece in the paper on this issue by a writer called Michael Taylor. I did have an inquiry as to whether I it was me who'd done that piece. It was a really good piece of writing, wasn't it? it yeah, it wasn't me. <laughs> but fair play to Michael Taylor, who did write the piece. Great move. And, and I think it's great that The Guardian are confronting this issue. I think it's a stain on our history that we have to confront. 
Yeah, I, I, I was driving into work, driving into uh, the podcast today, and if, you know, I listened to the Guardian podcast. This is the first of a six-part series where we look at the history of slavery and the Guardian. And I oh. thought, wow, it's a six-part series. I'm not sure there's any other media organisation that would devote six episodes to to, to saying mm. how bad that stain is in our history. So, cool. yeah, I won't be listening to it. But, right, you come know, on, on manoeuvres. Um, yeah, Crack on manoeuvres. Well, there was a... Yeah, I know you're a big fan of the Daily Mail. And the no, husband... I'm no, no, I'm not. <laughs> you're going to confuse the listeners. No, uh, look, you're not a big fan no, of the I'm Daily not. Mail. No. Um, but uh, the Daily Mail at the weekend, they uh, ran an interview with um, the, the the husband of Home Secretary. I wonder if there was a... I wonder if there's a story about, you know... Is being a husband of a successful Home Secretary the reason why he's speaking to the Daily Mail headline? How would but, he know? Well, Rao gave his first ever, I think it's pronounced Rao, R-A-E-L, who is uh, Suella Braverman's husband, gave his first ever interview, apparently. Uh, this was the headline in the Daily Mail. Gary Lineker effectively called my wife a Nazi. I lost family in the Holocaust and find that disgusting. Now, that story was written by Sarah Vine, who listeners of the podcast may know is the former wife of Michael Gove. I think Suella Braverman and the Daily Mail, who both dislike Lineker, are on manoeuvres. Nothing I heard over the weekend when Suella Braverman did the rounds on the she telly did. Yeah. Uh, changed my mind. And I almost think that this story by her husband was part of that manoeuvre process. Do you agree? Well, I think I said to you on the podcast last week that I suggested that Rishi Sunak take Suella Braverman quietly to one side and ask her to dial down the rhetoric on it because it's uh, potentially very incendiary. And uh, clearly he didn't. She hasn't lowered her tone at all. She's doubled down and she's gone on the attack over the weekend, over crime, attacking Labour, saying they're soft on crime. Yeah, it's her policies of austerity and cuts to the police and the court system that has been the single biggest cause of delays and the reason why justice hasn't been served. <clears throat> and uh, criminals are off the hook. It's why the Met Police is in crisis on her watch. So, you know, rail suit, uh, Rail Braverman claiming that he's the husband of a successful Home Secretary. I'm afraid he isn't. She's a remarkably unsuccessful one. And also the Border Force, that's on her watch as well. They've not been able to prepare in any way, shape or form for getting people through customs properly. So we've got these queues at Dover, which she said, again, aren't anything to do with Brexit. And, oh, and she's tried to re-inflame the whole debate around grooming gangs in Rotherham and Rochdale and places like that to make it a party political issue in these local newspaper, in these local elections that we've got coming up. You know, that was her main pitch on Sunday. And she's also saying that teachers and social workers should be mandated to report abuse as if she's just discovered this and brought it into action. I am a governor of a sixth form college. I know this is already the law. Why doesn't the Home Secretary? Because I agree on this instance with Labour Mayor of West Yorkshire, Tracy Brabin, who said Braverman's rhetoric felt very dog whistle and added that more hardworking professionals need to be brought in to address this issue. So shame on you, Suella Braverman, and shame on you, Sarah Vine of the Daily Mail. What, why shame on Sarah Vine for writing a story? Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, she always picks the particular angle on it, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah. I, like I say, I uh, I listened to some I, I listened to some of Suella Braverman's interview on Laura Kernsberg, who I thought challenged really well, actually. Oh um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Sorry, we, bit, haven't, we haven't mentioned well, it's a bit that. Of have a wonder in the fact that you know, in 2018, I think 12 Congolese um, asylum seekers were shot dead by the Rwandan uh, authorities. I don't know the full story. Um, and no, no, that wasn't the bit that interested me. It was the fact that Laura Kernsberg grilled her on this particular point four times that in the agreement that we've that this country signed with Rwanda they get to send us asylum seekers and refugees that have pitched up there that want to come to Britain right. and wow. she's like no 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 that's not true she's like, uh, it's in black and white home secretary and she wasn't having any of it no and it's like the other car crash interviews from Saturday by um um by, by the other um, Kemi Badenoch, yeah, she was yeah. on, um, she yeah. was doing the rounds, wasn't she? And yeah, well, she, she was just come across as a complete, complete fraud. She was talking about faking this, it. Um, she was talking about, by way of background, she was talking about this new trade deal that uh, the UK has struck with the Asia Pacific countries as well. Um, companies like uh, countries like Vietnam, Australia, uh, yeah. I think it's going to add 0.08% to yeah. the UK GDP. Um, and uh, I think the thing is, social media 
it highlights the worst aspects of an interview. I think you have to listen to the whole interview. Um, but um, oh, yeah, they, sorry it, that you had to do that. No, no, it wasn't. Uh, it, it wasn't the best. What I thought was interesting though about Kebby um, Kebby Badenoch was she said she's wants the press to stop talking about the impact of Brexit all the time, and that's when this gets back to the point I made earlier about trying to lean on the press. I don't like it. Yeah. Go um, on. Who else is on manoeuvres? Well, uh, and you mentioned Suella Braverman. There yep. was a story. She's I don't definitely. know if it's true or not, but um, she's been linked with. I don't even know. If the seats available, uh, uh, you know, are going to a softer seat. I think Windsor was mentioned as well because uh, she's coming under pressure in her own seat. Um, this seems to be the theory, actually. If you're under pressure in your own seat, try and go somewhere yeah, else. It's called the chicken so, run. Absolutely, it's called the chicken run. Um, and and what it is, it's it's um, this isn't so much on manoeuvres as conspiracy theories by Northern Spin. So the Conservatives are miles behind Labour when it comes to picking parliamentary candidates. So what you've seen is you've seen loads of stories about Labour choosing their candidates and not so many about the Conservatives. They're now putting their foot on the pedal and they're trying to uh, get this done. So last week, two female Conservative MPs who've been deselected, Sally Ann Hart in Hastings and Rye and Stafford MP Theo Clark have been readopted. Theo Clark was quite an interesting one because she'd just come back from maternity leave when she was told she'd been deselected. She's now been readopted. Um, last week, two Midlands MPs, Stuart Anderson and Nicola Richards, announced they were going to stand down. I think Nicola Richards is only about 29. I think they said they had personal reasons to do it. Um, I think one of them had come under a lot of abuse on social media and elsewhere. Now, there's speculation that Anderson and Richards intend to embark on something called, you mentioned it, the chicken run, not the film, um, whereby an MP leaves a marginal seat for a safer one. Now, Blackpool South MP, Scott Benton, uh, we don't get through an episode of Northern Spin without mentioning Scott Benton at least once. We need a nickname for him, don't we? We do, actually. Well, I think it's to do with his teeth, but I never like to use personal attacks on people because I yes, think that's wrong. Do. No, I don't. Yes. I don't do personal. <laughs> uh, you, you completely do. No, Every event to... I've ever seen you do, you comment on people's personal appearances. Yes, I might comment on people's personal appearance, but not in a negative way. Oh. There is a difference. There is a difference. Oh, okay. um, no, this not, is the guy not, who accused me of liking Jim Davidson, remember? I'm not sure about um, that. So anyway, Scott Benton, he may be doing the chicken run as well. Do you think there's any truth in this? I think he's something of an embarrassment to Blackpool Tories, and I wouldn't be surprised if he isn't pushed rather than running, mm. actually. Yeah. Anyway, on that, let's go for a quick break. Welcome back to the third and final part of Northern Spin. We call this the fun bit. But before we begin, a quick shout out to our latest sponsor, Red Flag Alert. The Manchester-based data intelligence platform has produced a clever online tool called Growth Flag. Growth Flag pulls live data from a comprehensive data set and quickly shows where growth potential exists in individual businesses right across the UK. Yeah, and actually, so thanks for your support. And, and, and congratulations to Red Flag Alert. They've just appointed two uh, senior members of staff. So it's nice to see Northwest businesses doing well. Uh, I know this is the fun bit, but we're going to talk about something which is a subject very close to my heart, which is cricket. And now for the fun bit, we're going to talk racism. <laughs> yeah. We're going to. I think it's. I think it's an important issue, um, and it's about the racism round that's engulfed. Yorkshire County Cricket Club. Yeah. Now the more fair to say we talk about we talk about cultural issues, don't we? In this yeah, this is a really yeah. important issue. So the Cricket Discipline uh, Commission, Commission, the CDC panel, found the uh, former England and Wales uh, captain Michael Vaughan. Uh, the case against him was not proved. He was alleged to have used racist language against former teammate Azim Rafiq and uh, a number of Asian teammates. Something he categorically denied saying. Uh, the panel upheld some of the charges against a number of former. Yorkshire players, all of whom withdrew from the process. I've got strong opinions on this, but what have mm. you got to say? I probably don't have as strong opinions about it, but let's just kind of try and find out what's going on here. So I did read the coverage about Michael Vaughan's not proven tribunal. I haven't followed it as closely as you have, to be fair. Um, and I thought his statement was kind and conciliatory. And you cannot help but feel for someone who should have been a national hero for winning the Ashes to have been reduced to this um, in, in in public life. However, it's become a culture war issue that has really entrenched um, where, where people already stand before they've even looked, looked at the evidence. And it's, it's what I would call a wedge issue where so many of Warren's indiscretions and banter, a mix of toxic dressing room stuff and elderly edge wine bar, lads bants, has enabled a lot of people to make up their minds irrespective of the facts and the scope of the inquiry. His comments on Twitter previously that London's full of foreigners, that Moeen Ali should do something about Islamic terrorism. I mean, like, 
really. Now, a friend of mine's been involved in the battles to reform Yorkshire County Cricket Club, and it seems there's an important issue that goes way beyond Michael Vaughan's banter or an attempt to draw an equivalence with the attempts to get Gary Lineker to stop tweeting, because, again, Michael Vaughan is still suspended from the BBC, where he used to do that programme with Phil Tufnell, didn't he, and be a regular comment commentator yeah. or co-commentator on Test Match Special. So you're a big cricket fan. Yeah. And I, I'm assuming you know Michael Vaughan. Yeah. Um, what's your view? Yeah, and and um, I, uh, I I know Michael Vaughan's side reasonably well. I've met him, I met him before. Um, he, he did a, a video about three years ago for a good friend of mine who <clears throat> was going through a tough time. It's his birthday and he sent me a really nice message. It was a jokey message um, and it absolutely made my mate's day. So, so I come in it with a slightly personal interest. Um, it's worth saying that <clears throat> Michael Vaughan <clears throat> did apologize for some of those historic tweets. And I think Michael Vaughan fell into the trap of being somebody in his 40s um, who was still thinking like a man in his 20s when he made those tweets. He was wrong. He admitted it. They looked terrible. Uh, he volunteered to go on a diversity and inclusion course at his own suggestion. Uh, but this is about much more than just individuals. And I was really pleased that Michael Vaughan came out and he spoke in such a conciliatory way. Um, he had been through a horrendous time and horrendous time, um, you know, but but so have other people. And that's what he said. So have uh, Azim Rafiq and yeah. some of the other players. Yeah. I've I played cricket since I was a teenager. I'm 50 now. I used to play in the Bradford League, which for those people who don't know much about cricket, is probably the toughest cricket league in the country. Sledging is commonplace. I, I was sledged uh, on a number of occasions. I was told I was rubbish, but apparently that's the truth. You're allowed to say that. Um, there was one game I didn't play in, but we had a player in our club who, uh, who was an eccentric uh, player and one of the opposition players accused him of being a paedophile. Now this was quite a few years ago. It was a horrible, horrible slur. It's completely false. The said individual, I'm not going to name, was banned. It was completely unacceptable. Racism is never banter. Racism is racism. There's no place for it. However, and this is important, the original investigation by the Yorks Cricket Club was flawed. It was absolutely flawed. The ECB investigation was flawed. How can you have an investigation when the allegations that were thrown at Vaughan, uh, Michael Vaughan. He's Vaughan now, is he? Yeah, no, it was, it was, it, well, I listened to a lot of crickets if they called him Vaughan and yeah, Tuffers, yeah. you know, yeah. so that's the reason I've dropped into, you know, that vernacular. Um, but, 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 you know, he was accused of saying things to, to, uh, you know, uh, Azim Rafiq at a game, which was, which was video, which was filmed. The investigation didn't speak to all the Yorkshire players in the match. They didn't speak to Sky Cameraman. They didn't speak to the umpires. And yet, Michael Vaughan for 18 months, his life has literally been cancelled for 18 months. You know, the BBC were in a slightly invidious position, but he became a he became a victim of the council culture. And this whole process, I think it's been unfair on um, Vaughan. I think it's been unfair on the players. I think it's been unfair on Azim Rafiq as well. Um, we, we have this premise in this country, at least we supposedly have it, that you're innocent until proven guilty. But 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 that wasn't the case. That that right wasn't afforded to Michael Vaughan. And and I read some of the stuff that he's written about over the weekend. It turned it affected his wife. I read that his wife was on beta blockers for eighteen months. As somebody, and I won't go into detail here, as somebody who got targeted on social media for a relatively short period of time, it is horrendous to be to be targeted like that by by keyboard warriors. And I think Michael Vaughan has made mistakes. I think he can be a force for good, and he can be a force for 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 improving our wonderful game of cricket. Um, and I hope we learn from this. And I hope Azim Rafiq is allowed to get on with the rest of his life as well. Okay. Right. Thank you for bringing us up to date on that. Now, what have you been up to this week? Yeah, well, uh, last week I interviewed Lou Cordwell from the GM LEP, which is now known as the Business Board. I interviewed her on Monday and Mike, met Mike Blackburn as well, who was a pre predecessor in that, in that role. Very interesting insights onto the direction of travel for Greater Manchester's economy. I also invited her to come on the podcast at some point and she said yes. Yeah. But pinning her down on a date might be a bit harder. I had my first business desk dinner last week uh, on Thursday, and my role was to present a leadership award to a hugely impressive woman, Janet Hemingway, or Professor Janet Hemingway, to give her a full title, um, who's done ever so much on uh, building a new business, raising funds for businesses that are specifically focused on infection control, which has been fantastic. Uh, she used to run the School of Tropical Medicine in Liverpool. Yeah, I met her once, actually, yeah. yeah. Really yeah. impressive. We gave her a leadership award last week. 
I also interviewed Steve Oliver from Music Magpie. Again, as we've discussed on this podcast, a really impressive guy who let himself down with a couple of uh, Maguire-esque banterish comments about the fact that when he first met me, I used to have hair. But then I forgave him for that because he called me, and I like this one, the Carlos Tevez of business journalism. Do you know why he called me that? I could I could cast aspersions. Uh, what, because you'll go anywhere for money? No, it's because I've uh, I've played for both big clubs in the north in the city. Ah, right, okay. For the, the other lot and for where I am now at the business desk. Okay. Just as Tevez played for City and United. Yeah, and West Ham. Yeah, you see what he did there. And West Ham. I've not played for West Ham. Okay. Anyway, Andy Burnham came to our roundtable on Friday as part of the Invest North series, the 11th of a series of 11, where we've had very senior people from the different LEPs and leadership. Ben Houchin didn't turn up to our one in Tees Valley. Strange that, isn't it? <laughs> but anyway, Andy came along and... Uh, do you know what, Chris? I'm going to say this at the risk of being told that I'm I'm up his arse or whatever, all yeah. the rest of it. He came to that, and I was talking about it with Alex Turner, the editor after the the MD of Business Desk. Afterwards, he said, "What a class act!" Yeah, yeah he is. Yeah, into the roundtable discussion, he brings people into the conversation. He thanks people for their contribution by drawing them in. You know, talking about trips overseas, the team that are around him. Um, it connects with people at a really personal level and re- reflects on their contributions. Really, really good. But I, th- I think I might say that when he lost his leadership uh, bid to be the Labour leader, he was up against Jeremy Corbyn, wasn't he? Yes. And you look this, at it. The second time. Yeah, you look at it and you think to yourself, because I, you know, I, I, I've got no axe to grind against Andy Burnham. I think he's, I think he's fantastic in so many respects. Um, but the way he presents and the way he engages with people and the way he engages with journalists yeah. as well. When he turns up, there's no fanfare. It's no. Like, oh, the mayor's here, the mayor's here. It's just yeah. like, oh, you're right. So can we get you a brew? And he went, I'll make me own brew. It's all right. Yeah, yeah. And you compare him to the way that, um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn talked to that female journalist and it's just uh, poles apart. Anyway, the other thing as well, Chris, important in my life and in my week as well, it's Holy Week, the run-up to Easter. And I did my bit on Sunday by reading at Palm Sunday Mass. And it, the thought occurred to me when I came off, um, I was going to say came off the stage. Yeah. <laughs> it's church. I thought, you should do that. What, you read? should do that. You're a good public speaker. Yeah, yeah. I. Um, you should volunteer. I used to. Go along I, to your Catholic church. Yeah. Do the bidding prayers. When I, uh, I don't go to church as much as I did since COVID, actually. Well, um, maybe this will make, giving you a platform will make you want to go back. No, and I might be able to mention Northern Spin uh, as well. Uh, no, no credit well, where you don't, you you don't get the opportunity to plug your own projects at church, by no, the way. <laughs> anyway, have you not got Northern Spin into it? Um, yeah, um, so yeah, you've had an impressive week, actually. I kept uh, yeah, kept tabs on that as well. Uh, I'm not sure whether being likened to Carlos Tevez of Business Journalism is, 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 is a great tagline that we can put on the Northern Spin. Uh, I was on holiday last week, actually. It's the um, you know uh, first, first time I've had off this week uh, or this year. Um, so uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, she pulled out of our skiing holiday so I went to Centre Parks in Sherwood Forest I found myself actually uh, I was taking my daughter to football training and uh, I found myself driving through Asheville and I thought this is a constituency of Lee 30p Anderson and uh, I couldn't see a statue and I was actually going to stop and take a photograph but it was raining I wanted to send it to you Um, so uh, any culturing uh, any sort of cultural offerings for us this week Michael yeah here's one and I'll, I'll throw it out to the listeners of this podcast and to you as well and to our team from what media who uh, we who produced the podcast so i do a feature on my blog and on instagram each month where i pick my lunch of the month and it's not about having fillet steak at san carlo with the property lads or a nice piece of piece of fish with the private equity boys down at piccolino but grabbing something for under a tenner i do prefer to eat out as well rather than have lunch at my desk and it's all part of my quest to bms be more Stanley, Stanley Tucci for the uninitiated. <laughs> Obviously the best lunch, cheap and cheerful, was in Rome. I had two glorious bowls of pasta, not on the same day. Mm-hmm. A great little cafe just off the Piazza del Popolo called Pastacuta. A carbonara one day and a bolognese the next, and it was perfection on a plate. So I'm putting it out there. I would love to find a cheap and cheerful bowl of pasta in Manchester for under a tenner. Tips, please. So anyway, to get cut to the chase, the award for lunch of the month for the month of March goes to Antalya, a kebab place in Hyde, where me and my mate Neil go after we recorded our radio show on Fridays. I'll say this about it. It's far better than it needs to be in a town like Hyde. Now, that's not to run Hyde down. We've not done a Hyde accent. Hyde. (laughs) (laughs) Hyde. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, good good spot. Yeah. And 
but the tenderness of the meat and the freshness of the salad put it right up there with other legends of the kebab world in Manchester, like uh, Cafe Istanbul or Venus on Dickinson Road. I can't give you any recommendations, mainly because I make my own sandwiches to save money. Uh, um, but uh, we can't all be spending cash. Um, I'm going to mention uh, one thing. I think it's important to mention it for the pod because, I mean, we've got a back history now, thanks to our friend at What Media, 28 uh, episodes plus our specials. But uh, I think Friday was the uh, the closure of Oldham's Coliseum Theatre after more than 135 years. It closed. Uh, it was an emotional night. Tributes were led by actors and actresses. Maxine Peake and Christopher Eccleston said he wouldn't be where he is today without his uh, treading the boards at Oldham's Coliseum Theatre sad day um, for the region yeah and I think the rallying call from that Chris uh, as our final party note on this podcast this week is support your local cultural institutions yeah support them volunteer for them if you can if you're a business person and you've got expertise volunteer to give them some accountancy advice you know the Oldham Coliseum Theatre burnt burned through five chief executives in four years. Mm. You know, that's not sustainable. And they didn't get their Arts Council funding either. So let's try and avoid these terribly, terribly sad situations in the future. That's all for episode eight of season three of Northern Spin. We're on Apple Podcasts. So please give us a review. We're on Spotify, Amazon, Google, and all points in between. Don't forget forget to press the subscribe button follow us on twitter at northern underscore spin one or watch us on youtube thank you to what media for recording this podcast our sponsors oscar technology lily shippen and growth flag in conjunction with the red flag alert special thanks as well to elliot taylor for providing the music my name is michael taylor the carlos tevez of business journalism and uh, my name is chris mcguire happy clappy of manchester news 